often think that in the first couple of evenings of a retreat after I know days that can be quite challenging in the beginning of a retreat, that it it's sometimes useful in the evening, those first couple of evenings, to give Dharma talks that might be a little bit uplifting or motivating or gladdening in some way. So tonight I'm not going to do that. And <laughs> instead I'd like to talk <laughs> about the wisdom of disappointment. This is something I've been reflecting on a lot over the last months. Simply because in talking with so many people, it seems to be something that people just talk about all the time. Not necessarily using those words particularly, or that word particularly. And yet, a lot of times when people are speaking about the difficulties they're meeting in their lives, or their relationships, or their work, or the world... There is often this underlying theme of disappointment. And isn't it something that we kind of meet on a daily basis? Sometimes we name it differently or label it differently. And yet, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed that (laughs) disappointment seems to be a big part of living. It seems to be one of those emotions, one of those feelings that arises over and over again. And, you know, over this, especially at this time of year, maybe it comes up a lot for people. Now, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to told me they were disappointed with Christmas. You know, that their family relationships weren't quite what they'd hoped them to be. You know, that things weren't quite as happy as they'd hoped them to be. Um, You know, the various realms of disappointment we can meet. Anyway, so it's a theme I'd like to explore a little bit more deeply. My sense is that one way of describing an enlightened heart is that it's a heart that cannot be shattered by disappointment. That it's a heart, a mind that is deeply surrendered the insistence that life must be other than it is. I think it's a joyful heart that really knows the wisdom of holding as something very alive the willingness to be surprised, the willingness to meet each single moment of our life with profound openness and receptivity, the willingness to meet life just as it is. And to know this joy, to know this quality of joy and happiness, I think it means for us learning what it does mean to step out of this uncomfortable marriage of wish and disappointment. And to release, maybe, to learn what it means to release all the frustration and despair and anguish 
that is born of holding on to this insistence that life must be other than it is. I think probably as long as most of us we can remember, disappointment has been part of our lives. There is simply so much in life that is not what we hoped for or not what we expected. In fact, so many times life seems to bring us less than we wished for or demanded or hoped for. I think we probably all remember the small and the large disappointments of our childhood. You know, from the times that our childhood mythologies were shattered in some way, to the times that we weren't loved or as popular as we'd hoped to be or not as successful in school or in sport as we'd hoped to be. I think we may remember times when we'd wished to have a different family than the family that we had, that we may have wished to have more attention, more love, more support. We may remember the times when we've been disappointed because we didn't win, we weren't as admired or successful as we'd hoped to be. And I think that we see that disappointment plays itself out in suffering. The disappointment often plays itself out in frustration, in envy, envying other people who they are. That sometimes disappointment plays itself out in blame, that we blame ourselves for not being good enough, or that we blame others for not offering to us what we'd expected them to offer. And those kind of childhood memories of disappointment, of course, don't end with childhood. As we go through our lives, we see our wishes and our hopes shattered in small and large ways. And the dance of the marriage of expectation and disappointment, it seems, I think, to follow us wherever we go. Perhaps we haven't ended up in the body we hope for. You know, perhaps we haven't ended up in the mind that we dreamt of or the relationships that we'd idealized in our youth. We see the mind doing this flip-flop all the time, don't we? When we're, you're sitting in the middle of the city, you dream of being in the countryside. You know, when the countryside, we find ourselves wishing for the city. When we're working, we imagine the bliss of retirement. People who retire talk about how they miss the stimulation of work. Very often when we're alone, we're wishing for companionship and imagining the happiness of that companionship. And yet, too often when we're in the midst of a party, what are we wishing for? You know, solitude and silence and aloneness. Some things in our lives just don't last long enough. And probably just as many things seem to last too long. And many times we've actually felt the ache of a deeper disappointment. And I'm sure many of you have also felt this in your life. 
when you have felt that people have let you down or betrayed you in some way or violated your trust in some way when you felt that people that you've cared for haven't offered you the the love or the support you've hoped for and sometimes in the midst of this chaotic and at times disappointing life we sort of imagine and hope for the peace that a retreat is going to bring and yet so often it happens that we've hardly sat down on our cushion and we're already planning our departure you know and imagining this peace and this happiness that is going to arrive when we've left the retreat doesn't it just go on and on and on you know we go for go to tea hoping for i don't know what <laughs> and you get broth you know it just goes on and on but it is not just to do with the outer world is is it there are so many ways in which we can feel disappointed with ourselves and in ourselves you know i talk he hear people tell me you know they're starting a retreat and really hoping that you know this retreat is finally going to be the retreat where they you know let go of all their resistance and hindrances and be the most dedicated and audacious yogi of all time and yet once more they say they find themselves hiding in their room or telling themselves it's you know later is going to be a much better time to be mindful in we hope for rapture and we get an aching back we hope for calmness we often get agitation even the moments of stillness we find are so often interrupted you know by this little voice that says oh finally i've arrived you know finally i'm calm completely shattering whatever little glimmer of stillness or calmness was there and this ways that we can be more deeply disappointed in ourselves too when we feel that we've hurt others or been less generous or less patient than we'd expected ourselves to be times when we've said things or done things that we regret and we feel disappointed in our lack of kindness or our lack of tolerance i think in truth the story of disappointment is almost too long a story to tell you know and you might think that this is a very depressing thing to linger on but i would suggest that the discomfort of disappointment is something that we are really asked to meet very fully and very honestly that the discomfort of disappointment is such a familiar companion in our life it would be somehow very weird and naive to overlook it because disappointment too it really does it is not just a feeling it has an effect on our consciousness and very often the effect of disappointment is that it it leads us to hang kind of suspended waiting in wishes and hopes about a moment that has yet to arrive hoping for things that we don't have or to be who we are not in this moment 
As I've reflected upon this experience of disappointment, it struck me that every moment of disappointment is actually a glimpse of the first noble truth. That there is unsatisfactoriness in life, there is suffering in life. I think every moment of disappointment also seen more deeply is also a glimpse of the second noble truth. That there is actually a cause of suffering. That the very nature of craving and wanting and waiting is almost to invite chronic disappointment into our hearts and our lives. It seems that the very nature of entertaining or dwelling in craving and wanting in a way is almost to volunteer for suffering. That the nature of holding onto our demands and our insistence and hope is in a way to surrender the joy and the peace that really might be possible for us. Every moment of disappointment also holds within it, I think, the seeds of the third noble truth, that there is a real possibility of bringing about an end to the pain of disappointment, bringing about an end to a life that feels frustrated and beginning to understand what it means to be free. And I'm sure, as all of you know, the whole teaching of the Buddha is not to turn away from anything. That the whole teaching of the Buddha is to learn how to welcome, learn how to embrace, learn how to include. And that the whole teaching of the Buddha is that the seeds of freedom and wisdom are found within the experiences and the places of suffering. If we have the willingness to look really deeply and honestly. The Buddha never ever suggested that freedom comes later after somehow we've reached some idyllic or perfect moment. But the teaching instead is look more deeply. Every moment of struggle, every moment of anguish, every moment of suffering, this is the moment where the possibility of real freedom and compassion lies. I think there's a, a wonderful poem that illustrates just that. It says, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole.
in the path of liberation asks us not only to find the grace and the courage and the compassion to embrace the discomfort and at times the deep painfulness of disappointment, but also to understand the liberating wisdom that is offered to us in the midst of pain, the pain of disappointment. You know, my understanding is that disappointment is a place where every great mystic and every great yogi actually begins their journey. The disappointment is somehow at the root of every path of enlightenment. Siddhartha began his journey with disappointment very clearly. A disappointment that his father had desperately tried to shield himself from, going even to the lengths of removing the fading and the wilting flowers from the trees in the palace gardens not wanting his son Siddhartha to feel any kind of discomfort and not wanting his son Siddhartha to have any sense that life should be anything other than perfect. You know, why do we imagine that it was so startling to Siddhartha when he went out of this constructed and engineered world of pleasure and perfection, and actually for the first times, really met life just as it was. And you've heard that this story many, many times when Siddhartha left the palace and he met someone, he encountered someone who was sick, and he encountered someone who was aging, and then he saw the body of someone who had died. And he was so startled. And why would that be? Because in that moment, he understood really that the world, and indeed his world and his life, was not how he had imagined it to be. And it really wasn't just the encounters with aging, sickness, and death that were so startling to Siddhartha. What was so startling to him was for him to understand that he was part of that tapestry of life. So that when he turned around to his driver and he said, will this also happen to me? Will I also age and get old? Will I also get sick? Will I also die? And every time his driver said to him, yes, it's true, you will. And I think the startling part for Siddhartha was to see that the shattering, in a way, of his expectations, his wishes, his hopes, and in that moment, his world, in a way. The world as he had believed it to be. When Siddhartha left his palace to embark on his journey, starting with this disappointment, that life wasn't how he'd imagined or been told it was. When he left his palace, it really, you know, I think that the kind of metaphor in this story is that it wasn't just a kind of geographical departure, 
But in a way, Siddhartha was leaving the palace of his illusions and expectations. And disappointment for Siddhartha then was an agent for change. It was an agent of transformation. The willingness to meet that disappointment was actually a turning point for him, as disappointment really can be a turning point for us. If we can find really the willingness to meet and to understand the nature of frustrated attachment, because that is what disappointment is. If we can understand the nature of frustrated attachment. Sometimes we're not that willing to understand the nature of frustrated attachment. So we actually try to explain disappointment to ourselves in different ways. You know, sometimes in moments of disappointment, the story that we tell ourselves is about how unfair life is. This shouldn't be happening to me. And this mantra of not fair can follow us through our life. We don't get what we want, it seems, often enough. And one of our, the other ways of explaining disappointment to ourselves is through blame. Blaming ourselves for not being good enough or blaming the world for not being good enough. One of the ways that we respond sometimes to disappointment is through striving, forcing, striving to find this elusive perfection that always seems to lie in another moment. One way, another way of responding to disappointment is to sink into a kind of despair and apathy and to feel it's not worth risking our hearts, that it's not worth risking disappointment. So we won't, we won't endeavor for things, we won't try for things, we won't, wouldn't expose ourselves to another relationship or another effort that we feel maybe is going to bring failure. Another way, of course, a very common way of responding to disappointment is to become very angry, to become very aversive. You know, just angry at ourselves, angry at the world. And we know where that takes us. It makes our heart more and more contracted. And I think so often when we look at the times when we're, when we're really angry, what do we see? Again, frustrated attachment. Things are not the way that we want them to be. Sometimes we just complain. It's a wonderful story about a, a, a monk that goes into a, a Christian monastery on a, a very long retreat, and the, the deal is, or the conditions on his retreat, is it's a silent retreat, and once every ten years he gets an interview with the abbot in which he's allowed to say two words. You know, so ten years go by, ten years of silence and solitary practice, and he goes to the abbot, and the abbot says, well, how are you doing? You know, and, and the monk says, bed hard. 
And they have a sense, well, you're really not practicing enough. You know, go back, try again. You know, another 10 years go by. He comes in for his next interview, and the abbot says, well, how you doing? He says, well, food bad. And the abbot says, well, still, I'm afraid you're really not working very well in your practice here. Go back, try again. So another 10 years goes by, and he comes back, and the abbot says, no, how you doing? And monk says, I quit. <laughs> and the abbot says, I'm really not surprised. You've done nothing but complain for the last 30 years. <laughs> and this is kind of... It's like sometimes we know this mind. It's just like complaining, you know? It's just not liking the way the moment is. We don't always understand or want to understand the way things actually are. We don't always want to understand the simple truth of the moment. And sometimes, because we don't want to do that, we try to convince ourselves that we've just made a mistake in placing our wishes or our hopes on this, you know, person or thing or ideal. And really, all that we need to do is just transfer it to something else. You know, the right thing, the right ideal, the right project. The truth is that we feel disappointed basically when our map of life is sabotaged by reality. And that's when we become aversive or feel let down this tragic cycle, really this tragic cycle of hope and wish, of struggle and pain goes round and round and round. And very often, unless we really see it really clearly, all it does is make us more bitter and resentful and mistrustful of life. So really, what is it that we're being asked to understand? What is the insight we are really asked to nurture? Disappointment can be a black hole that we just disappear into. Or it can also be a genuine turning point. Disappointment can make us bitter, or it can be a real beginning of freedom. An invitation simply to wake up to life's realities. That freedom begins with our willingness actually to turn towards disappointment rather than flee from it. And those moments when our hearts sink and say, oh no, to ask ourselves, what is it that we are being asked to learn? What is it we're being asked to understand? Or what is the freedom in this moment? Within this most uncomfortable feeling. I think one of the first things that we see so obviously is that disappointment and expectation go hand in hand. That craving and frustration are two sides of the same impulse. And it's really hard to imagine a life that is not shaped by expectation. When we look closely at disappointment, I think we also see how very few moments in our life are actually not peppered by expectation from the moment that we wake up in the morning, hoping that our sitting will be a certain way, hoping that the weather will be a certain way, hoping that our bodies will be a certain way, hoping that we're going to have something other than porridge for breakfast. You know, it starts almost with our waking moment. And it's an invitation to suffer 
or those moments are also an invitation to be free. I think most of us would admit that we surely do want life to be a certain way. And in truth, some of our expectations actually come from a very deep place in our hearts. And some of our expectations are really valid and they inspire us. You know, the Buddha talked about kusala or wholesome or noble expectation almost. You know, the wish for enlightenment, the wish for freedom, the wish for love, the wish for happiness, the wish for peace, the wish for justice. Talked of these as kusala, noble aspirations, noble expectations. We wish in our life find an end to alienation and struggle and to discover the depths of compassion and care that is possible for us. And it is true that without those expectations, probably none of us would arrive here. None of us would ever begin on this path. And to have no aspirations in our life, you know, to seek for nothing is really not a path of enlightenment. I think what's more important for us to examine is to see when even these kusala, these noble expectations, at what point do they turn into insistence or demand or even a sense of entitlement? At what point do these wholesome, even wholesome expectations begin to be a cause of suffering? How do we turn them into uh, some kind of assumption by which we measure our worth? Because that's the moment when they start to be the forerunners or the parents of struggle and disappointment. At what point do we invest so much self into those aspirations or expectations that failure, the failure of our expectations, seems really to shatter our hearts. And this can be so subtle, you know. I, I see, you know, on retreats, you know, how many people in our world, in our culture, you know, really suffer, suffer from this burden of the expectation of perfection, of the kind of person you're supposed to be, you know, how successful, how you know, popular, how lovable, you know, all the rest of it, how beautiful. You know, there's such a weight in our culture, you know, and you see it so strongly in young people, and actually we don't seem to outgrow it very well at all. And then I, I see people come into a meditative path, and instead of learning to let go or, or see the suffering of those demands, often they add to them. You know, now, not only am I supposed to be popular and perfect and beautiful and successful and all those things, now I'm also supposed to be peaceful and generous and tolerant and patient, you know. And the portfolio of expectation is just getting bigger and bigger, and it's just a sort of more enlightened name for the same old level of insistence and demand and the same setup. It, it is the turning of the kusala or the ennobling into actually something which resembles much more 
craving or expectation or insistence. And I think this is such a, a kind of fine nuance, a fine line to be aware of in our own practice. You know, when you meet those walls in yourself, you know, where you're ready to, you know, run screaming from the hall or, you know, throw up your hands in the air and in despair, guess what? Frustrated attachment is here again. You know, we're meeting disappointment again. Some place we have invested so much self in those expectations that they have actually become the second noble truth, that they're cause of suffering. Siddhartha's father did everything for him except to provide for him a forum in which Siddhartha could explore freedom, in which Siddhartha could really explore what it means to let go. For us, I think life continues to provide that forum. Can we first begin to embrace the discomfort of disappointment? rather than jump away from it. This is hard for us. You know, I think as Westerners in our culture, we have such a low tolerance level for discomfort of any kind, you know, that it is almost like we are trained to jump, that we're trained to abandon at the first kind of little glimmer of discomfort. In fact, one of the illusory expectations that keeps disappointment spinning in our life is somehow imagining that we should have a discomfort-free life. The Buddha once said in one of his teachings, he says, Did you ever see in the world a man or a woman, 18, 90, or 100 years old, frail, crooked as a gable roof, bent down, resting on crunch crutches, with tottery steps, infirm, with youth long fled, broken teeth, gray and scanty hair or none, wrinkled with blotched limbs, and did the thought never occur to you? You also cannot escape this? I think when we open our eyes just a little, we see the way that our world is actually punctuated with hurt and loss, grief and sadness. And did the thought never come to us that this too will come to us? You know, Freud once said that neurosis is the refusal to suffer. The Buddha, I think, perhaps would say it a little bit differently. He would say that the unwillingness to embrace suffering, to embrace discomfort with grace and compassion and understanding, that that unwillingness, in a way, is the greatest of all sufferings. Because that unwillingness means that we just live an agitated life, always in flight, always in flight from discomfort. And actually, that flight from discomfort, I think, has truly tragic consequences for our planet and our world and our environment. The most broken moments in our lives 
I think, the most moments of deepest disappointment ask us to pause and to reflect and to see more deeply how do we free ourselves within suffering? How do we free ourselves of the suffering of disappointment? I think all of us know that we can never totally free ourselves of hurt or sadness. It's part of being human. It's part of having a heart that is alive and feels. There is discomfort in life that can't be avoided or escaped from. You know, part of, I think, part of the package of having a body and a mind is that you have discomfort. But the deeper ache of disappointment, this is something different. This is really an open door to freedom, to find the willingness to stay with that discomfort, to be interested in it, is to take the first step to walk through that door. Maybe it is to ask what it is really in those moments of aching disappointment. What is it really that we have invested in, attached ourselves to, the wishes, the hopes, the expectations? Maybe we start to see that the more tightly we hold to those expectations and and hopes, is it the degree of tightness that we bind ourselves to frustration and disappointment with? Perhaps we didn't even realize how much our happiness and well-being relies upon our hopes and expectations being met until once more we find ourselves in that black hole of frustration or despair. Perhaps we didn't even realize how strongly we hold on to that map of how life should be, how others should be, how we should be, until that map is challenged. And that really is the discomfort we're asked to embrace. Hope and disappointment, should and frustration, married to one another. I often think that Genuine insight practice is a practice of shouldlessness. Shouldlessness. One of the wisdom pieces, I think, in disappointment is to see that disappointment is a little bit like a small death. It's kind of a death of a world view. And if we can see that and just relax into it, perhaps we're really ready to meet life just as it is. Never certain, never sure, unpredictable, without guarantees, filled with change, full of surprises. You know, reliability is just not the nature of this life. And somehow this is often what we expect or demand. The way of meeting the discomfort of disappointment, I think, is actually just to look it in the eye to let go of the resistance. You know, if you're cold and you want to be warm, well, just see what it feels like to be cold. You know, if your back is ache, instead of insisting that your back shouldn't be aching, meet that back just as it is. Find wise response for sure. If you feel kind of let down, ask yourself, really, who is being let down? And what is it that we really demanded of another? Can we embrace imperfection? You know, if the mind, if your mind is unruly, instead of wanting or trying to escape from it, 
Could we learn to turn towards it and to befriend it? There's no cure for discomfort. It's part of being alive. But there is a cure for disappointment and aversion. Maybe we can learn to hold our attachments and our demands a little bit more lightly. I think what is, what is so important to see in this teaching and practice is that non-attachment and that equanimity and freedom are not destinations. They are not nouns. They are verbs. They are practices. You know, we practice non-attaching ourselves to things. You know, we practice equanimity. We practice freeing ourselves. Maybe gradually allowing our expectations, our demands to hold a little bit less importance and not giving them the authority because this is what happens. We give our insistence and our attachments the authority to be the gatekeepers of our happiness, to be the gatekeepers of our peace, our joy, our freedom. And actually, we can withdraw that authority. It's a hard practice. Because I say that we, it's so easy to see the way our lives are saturated with expectations in every situa in situation. When we sit, when we walk. You know, I remember teaching in Switzerland some years ago. And the place where I teach in Switzerland is, is kind of like one of these idyllic paradise spots, you know, perched up in the Alps, you know, you look out the window and just all these incredible mountains. And most people, the first time they go there, you know, they spend most of the retreat, you know, with their mouths hanging open, just sort of looking at the mountains. And then it was so striking to me when I went there another time and someone had come back for their second time and they said, you know, it's not as beautiful as I remembered it. <laughs> It's actually just as beautiful as it was. It's not as beautiful as I remembered it. Because the whole level of holding, holding the memory and holding the expectation, was it was like a, a setup. I think part of learning to practice non-attachment is to really see what it's like to approach every city and every walking with a heart that simply does not know what to expect. Listen to your mind with a mind that doesn't know what to expect. Listen to the wind before even the thought, wind, arises. Come to that level of pure receptivity, that level of not knowing. And it is a practicing of freedom. Perhaps we begin to discover that the peace and the happiness that is really born of liberating ourselves from that weight of should and expectations is something very immediate. You know, Nagarjuna great Indian teacher once said, to no longer insist on being someone is to be free to be no one. And I think this actually applies to the whole world, doesn't it? When I don't insist that you are a certain way, I actually liberate you from the weight 
of my expectations and demands. When I no longer insist that my meditation or the world or life has to be a certain way, I have to liberate the world to be just as it is. Maybe we get a sense of how contracting, how contracting so many of our expectations and our, and our demands actually are, that we're constantly looking for a repetition of something that we know. But that looking for that repetition then only ever takes us to places that we know. It's like watching the movie Titanic, you know, a hundred times. You know, you already know the ending. You know, you don't need to watch it again. And actually this is true of so many of our attachments and expectations. We actually already know the ending. We actually maybe don't need to keep doing it. Deepening in meditation, I think, has really something to do with our ability to bear and to meet discomfort. And to bear and to meet the discomfort of disappointment. To learn the lessons that it offers to us. I also feel like happiness and peace in our life really actually has also a great deal to do with that same ability to meet discomfort and the willingness to be with it. And I think this has something very, very immediate to do with our retreat here. You know, when we begin to practice, of course, you know, we have grand expectations, don't we? We expect bliss and calm and clarity and peace. Of course, we all want this, but too often we think that the way to this bliss and this clarity is to kind of annihilate and eradicate everything that gets in the way. Isn't this just a repetition of something we do in our life? So sometimes in our practice we see ourselves really trying to annihilate and eradicate all the thoughts we don't want, the unruliness of the mind, you know, the discomfort in the body, the, the discomfort of other people around us. We think, if I get this out of the way, you know, then the happiness and the peace I really expected is going to arrive. Often telling ourselves that this shouldn't be happening. And in that moment, we're meeting some very familiar places of frustration and disappointment, frustrated attachment. Now, what would it be like to let go of that insistence? You know, to make room for the unruly thoughts, to discover actually they become less unruly when we make space for them. You know, some of the hardships that we meet in our life to make space rather than making disappointment. This is kind of like the great art of meditation practice. We are making spaciousness rather than making disappointment. I think wisdom teaches us again and again to let go of every single thing that we attach ourselves to, to lighten the load of demand and insistence, to befriend to be with what is. And then I, I think when we stop trying to find ground in that which is essentially groundless, we really may discover that enlightened heart that cannot be shattered by disappointment.
we take just a couple of moments to sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.